0: Past Ball Show, brought to you by Oh. What the f
1: you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f, f- put that in. I don't. F- so the Tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to
2: the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on. Let's see, one hit. That's all
1: we got. One goddamn hit
0: worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game, of baseball. There's so much stuff to talk about.
1: I would say I would know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball, and from the baseball angle, I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this, I have never used steroids, period. Jerry? remember, it's not a lie if you believe. Joe Carter with a three-run homer, the winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays.
0: And this team sucks. Well, the the man man team is, is, he's, he's
1: out. out. Yes, Brad is Brett. out. Look, look at this. Brad is out. And uh, team back. I'm not want to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. This can run cleaner than any baseball business.
0: Ever put out in the 100 years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh, yeah. Good morning. John Pieli, Pass Show, right here on the MTR Radio Network. Don't forget to check everything out, johnpiele.com. And tweet at me at john underscore as we keep this program interactive. A lot of stuff going on in baseball. We're going to talk a little bit about where the standings are and where teams are at this point and how they are based on the expectations of what the experts thought. And then we'll compare it to what I thought. A couple historical things that we want to hit up on. We're going to talk about Mike Pelfrey's Major League debut and talk about the catcher who has caught the most games in Major League Baseball history. On the second half of this hour, we're going to be joined by umpire Al Clark. And Al just released a book, Called Out But Safe a baseball umpire's journey written by him he's also joined by dan schlossberg who is a guy that i've had on this show a couple times he's wrote, wrote a book about the 300 game winners as well as a book about milo hamilton the longtime announcer and uh, you know al clark's journey of course you know 25 years in the major leagues as an umpire and some things end up happening to him later on. He ends up serving a little time in jail. He ends up getting let go by Major League Baseball. But we're going to get all into that in a second part of this hour. But what I want to start out talking about here is, the, in my opinion, the disparity between the talent in the American and National Leagues. And uh, we touched a little bit on this, but not too much in depth. Because you talk about the teams that can succeed in the American League against the teams that can succeed in the National League. And what I mean by that is the National League coming into this season, a lot of us looked at three teams who all happened to be ahead of their own division. The St. Louis Cardinals, the Washington Nationals, and the Los Angeles Dodgers all being heavy favorites to win the division. If you go over to the American League, you got the AL West, the way it's set up. The Oakland Athletics are probably the favorite by some people, but you also got the Texas Rangers. You also got the Los Angeles Angels. The American League East, you know just about any team can win it, really for the exception of the Toronto Blue Jays, who people are not very high on this year. But you know about the Red Sox and what they did last year. Tampa Bay is going to give them a, a hard fight. You know about the Yankees and what they did. So when you're talking about the division winners or predicting division winners prior to the season, you're going to have a little harder of a time to be able to substantiate a team in the American league as opposed to the national league because of the strength of the other teams. But in my opinion, and in a lot of other people's opinion in the national league, the three division projected winners um, are there. And then there's a huge drop off, but based off the results of what we've seen so far throughout the first month of the season, It hasn't worked out that way. You got the Atlanta Braves who won the National League East last year in first place. You got the Milwaukee Brewers sitting with the best record in the entire major league and leading the AL Central. And in the West, you got the San Francisco Giants who are off to a pretty good start. Um, You really, you know, have, have yet to see the dominance of the three teams that I think we all thought would be favorites to win their division in the National League. Now, Obviously, we're one month into the season. It means absolutely nothing. And I think we'll see over the course of May and June if these, if these teams that we, everybody was so high on could kind of back up their worth and get themselves in position where we could consider them the favorites to win the division again. But my point about this whole thing is you look at the strength of the teams in the American League when you can't have bona fide division winners over what you're picking in the American League. Uh, it also leaves a lot more parity in the National League because of the reason that I just mentioned. Now, that so-called drop-off is based off the start of the season before a game was even played. Now, you got the Braves, you got the Brewers, you got the Giants, who are all legitimately in the race and, at the time, leading their own divisions. So they get thrown into the mix, but that's also leaving out teams like... The Cincinnati Reds, the Pittsburgh Pirates, remember two teams that won the wild card last year. And the reason I wanted to talk about this is because you saw the New York Mets play the Philadelphia Phillies this past week. And this was a point that I mentioned off air and I thought it was a pretty good discussion because the Mets and the Phillies were kind of in the same situation but different. They got there in a different way. We know about the Philadelphia Phillies and the veterans that they have on their team and the fact that a core group of these players won a World Series in 2008, made it to another in 2009, and won five straight division titles from 2007 to 2011. Now, the Phillies obviously had down season last year. They changed managers. Ryan Sandberg's the the guy running the show here. But the Phillies haven't gone out there and necessarily had a youth movement. So a lot of their talent is based off the veteran players that they have on this team. The Mets, well, you could say they couldn't be any more different. Uh, They've essentially taken the last couple years off as far as trying to contend and be up there with the elite teams in Major League Baseball, but they've rebuilt. They've rebuilt their farm system. You know about a lot of the younger players and particularly the younger pitchers you got coming up. But when we're talking about the outlook for the season, I don't think either one of these teams are expected to win the National League East or become uh, a bona fide playoff team that's going to go deep into October. But they both stand in this one common ground. The fact that, number one, a good start is going to get them um, more confidence in themselves. And as the season goes on, uh, maybe they start to become a contender. Number two, there's always that possibility that a team goes out there and overachieves. And there's always that surprise team each year. And I think the Mets and Phillies, who are both around 500, if not over at this moment, are probably candidates for that as we finish the month of April. Another team that the Mets happened to play this past week was the Colorado Rockies. Uh, Another team that could be considered in that same type of boat. One that nobody's really going to take seriously in regards to getting to the postseason. But if they get off to a good enough start they're going to start to get a little backing and you're going to start to point out the reasons why they can make the playoffs. And a team that obviously has had that success that you could say is in that same boat as the Milwaukee Brewers. They've gotten very good starting pitching. Ryan Braun has hit the ball well. Uh, Guys like Mark Reynolds, Jonathan Lucroy, Carlos Gomez, etc., cetera, have gotten it together, and they've gotten off to a very good start. And as the season goes on, if the Brewers continue to have the success that they had in April, you're going to start to take them seriously and, has, and talk about how they're a legitimate contender and could win the National League Central division. Now, the National League Central it pretty much belongs to the St. Louis Cardinals, but obviously it hasn't worked out to that point. Uh, They haven't gotten off to the best start. You saw when they lost three or four to the Mets a couple weeks ago. uh, They did not look like a team or the same team that we saw in October when they made it to the World Series. So you also have the Cincinnati Reds and the Pittsburgh Pirates, who I mentioned. The Chicago Cubs, they're not off to a very good start. But you know about the influx of talent that they have in the minor leagues and how soon they're going to come up. And the fact that if they make it up to the majors pretty soon you're going to see a big difference in the talent overall on that team. And I do like their starting pitching. I think their starting pitching is okay with Jeff Samarjian and Travis Wood and Edwin Jackson, they at least got three guys that go out there to throw 200 innings. And I think this is a team that, if they get the right younger players up and they start to contribute right away, probably have a bigger story for next season as opposed to this year. But you never know. And you go on into the East and you know about the Nationals struggling right now, they're behind the Mets in third place with the Atlanta Braves leaving the division. The Atlanta Braves have a chance to do what they did last year, and that's continue to build off of an early lead in the division, where they essentially led wire to wire and won the National League Eastern Division last year. Uh, everybody's expecting the Washington Nationals to have some success and be able to win a division and kind of be a no-doubter. But right now, they don't have Bryce Harper, probably through July. Doug Pfister is on the disabled list. Tyler Clippert has pitched terribly. And, and, and if you look at the situation, their catching situation is a little bit of a mess. Uh, this is a team that Yes, I I praise the fact that they have depth at just about every position because they've needed it. If it wasn't for that depth, then maybe this season would be considered over already. But because this team has a lot of depth, that they're going to be considered a legitimate top-of-the-league team until they absolutely fall on their face. And you look at, in my opinion, and I guess to kind of put this all to a crescendo and make make a little sense into it, the National League, the way it's set up, is you have a lot of teams that nobody's really impressed with. In other words, teams that have a lot of flaws, but there there are so little uh, teams without many flaws that these teams that have the flaws in them may be able to stick around and be in this race a little longer than in prior seasons, if that makes any sense. A team like the Phillies or a team like the Mets or a team like the Colorado Rockies, If they could play some good baseball for a couple months, get themselves to a point where they're sitting there maybe eight to 10 games over 500 as you get to the trading deadline, then we may start talking about, all right, what kind of adjustments do they need to make if they want to be in it with the big boys? And up up to this point, I think all three teams have played well. And they've all shown signs of having at least some strengths that they could compete with some of these other teams in the league. And I think you, there's a better chance that a surprise team makes the postseason out of the National League as opposed to the American League where there just is too much talent amongst the top teams. Right now, the Yankees, the Tigers, and the Athletics are leading the division. And if the Yankees, Tigers, and Athletics won the division, their divisions at the end of the season, it would probably surprise nobody. And if you look at the teams that are probably going to miss the playoffs. Um, you would have to take out of a group of teams that are set up for those last two wild card spots. You got the Rangers, like I said. You got the Angels the Kansas City Royals, the Rays, the Red Sox, and probably stops after that. Maybe a chance, you may see a little something out of Cleveland and made the playoffs last year, a little something out of Seattle or Baltimore. But more than likely, the first series of teams that I mentioned in the American League are probably going to be amongst the five postseason teams. But the National League, I think it's a little more wide open, and there's a better chance that the National League will seed at least one wildcard team that we may not have said legitimately was a playoff-bound team coming into the season. Once again, John Piele, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Of course, on JohnPiele.com. Tweet at me, at John underscore Pielle. We're going to transition for a little bit of division talk to a little bit of historic talk. And you know, I wrote an article the other day, Bases Empty Blog, JohnPiele.com, the whole thing. Feel free to check it out. And it was an interesting article about major league catchers and total games caught on a professional level. And obviously, I chose my words carefully. Um, Every catcher that was mentioned on my list played at least one game in the major leagues. And I totaled up. And obviously, it helps from BaseballReference.com as well as Wikipedia. All total games caught at all professional levels and that includes the minors and the major leagues and if you know the Mexican league is considered a triple-a league so I'll start out with all what all is common knowledge Yvonne Rodriguez obviously has caught more games than any catcher in major league baseball history followed by Carlton Fisk, Bob Boone, Gary Carter and Jason Kendall that's the top five and you want to talk about the top 10 six through 10 Tony Pena, Brad Osmus. Jim Sundberg, Al Lopez, and Benito Santiago. Now, when I combined all professional leagues, and that's minor league, Mexican league, and major league, which are all under one roof, we'll start to count down from 10. 10 is Jason Kendall, who initially was number five. Number nine is Gary Carter, who was initially number four. Number eight was Benito Santiago, who was 10. Seven was Bob Boone who was third on the list. Number six, Al Lopez, who ranks number nine in the major league list. Uh, Brad Osmus ranks number five, and he ranked number seven on major league list. Tony Pena was number four with 2,430 games. Carlton Fisk was number three, 25, 27. Yvonne Rodriguez was number two at 2,671 games in both the minors and the majors. The catcher who was caught the most games In professional baseball history is Frank Estrada, who caught a total of 2,847 games in the minor leagues, Mexico, and the big leagues. Unfortunately, Estrada's MLB career consisted of just one game for the 1971 New York Mets. Frank's career lasted 30 seasons, though, having started in Mexico in 1964 and lasted all the way through the 1994 season when he was 46 years old. Estrada was sent to the Mets in an unknown transaction before the 1971 season. Prior to that, he had spent five, the past five and six of the last seven seasons in the Mexican League. Estrada will forever be known as being part of the big trade that sent Nolan Ryan to the Mets for Jim Fergosi, Estrada, Don Rose, and Leroy Stanton. While the other players remained with their new teams through at least the 1972 season, Estrada was dealt by the Angels in May of 1972 to the Baltimore Orioles for a pitcher by the name of Tom Dukes. Then, after the 1972 season, he was traded again, this time to the Chicago Cubs for catcher Elrod Hendricks. Estrada failed to return to the major leagues in 1972 and 73 for either the Angels Cubs or the Orioles, despite putting up decent two very good minor league numbers. For the 1974 season, he returned to Mexico and played for the Pueblo Pericos, from 1974 to 1980, he joined the Campeche Braves from 1981 to 1983 before splitting the 84 season with the Leon Bravos and the Toluca Truchas. He returned to Campeche, where he spent 1985 to 1988, before going to León from 1989 to 1991. Estrada would finish his professional career in Mexico for the Minnititlan Petroleros, where he ended up playing through 1994, amazing how a catcher can spend 30 years behind the plate. For Frank Estrada, it was his job. He was a catcher, not just a baseball player. And if he was not catching, he was not playing anywhere else on a field. And a lot of the guys that I mentioned, the guys who caught more games than anybody else in Major League Baseball history, uh, some ended up playing other positions after a certain amount of time. And a lot of the better offensive catchers ended up moving to a different position, like Yogi Berra, like Mike Piazza. Guys like that ended up either playing the outfield, first base, or DHing. And that didn't that was not Frank Estrada. This guy was only gonna play if he was a professional catcher. And he ends up sticking out a very good career in Mexico, one that not so much of us get a chance to talk about. Uh, but the guy's played more professional games at catcher than anybody in major league history. Once again, John Pielli here, Passball Show, johnpielli.com, right here on the MTR Radio Network. Don't forget to tweet at me, at john underscore pielli. Last little thing I want to get into before we hit the break and then we talk to Al Clark, uh, author of his autobiography, Called Out But Safe, A Baseball Umpire's Journey, co-written by Dan Schlossberg. Um, I, I wanted to mention a little bit about something that stood out to me the other day. I was, I was looking through, like I normally do on Baseball Reference, playing around with stats. and um, Obviously, common knowledge is the fact that the Minnesota Twins signed right-hand pitcher Ricky Nolasco to a four-year, $49 million contract. He joined Mike Pelfrey, who was already on the staff. And it made me remember Mike Pelfrey's Major League debut and Pelfrey ends up pitching the second game of a doubleheader against the Florida Marlins July 8th of 2006. Now, Pelfrey was a guy that Omar Minaya and the Mets front office were considered bringing him up earlier when the Mets had some injuries with their pitching staff. And remember, 2006 was the year the Mets ran away with the start to finish. That was the year they obviously lost in the NLCS in seven games and a grueling seventh game to the St. Louis Cardinals. But on this July 8th, Uh, It was the second game of a doubleheader. Pelfrey happened to be matched up against a right-hand pitcher by the name of Ricky Nolasco. Now, Nolasco was not making his Major League debut. He had made 21 appearances and was making his 10th start for the Marlins at that point. He pitched a little bit in the bullpen, made a couple starts. He was doing okay. So, how did things end up working out? Well, obviously... You're looking at a Mets team that was at their best. They had guys like Carlos Beltran, Carlos Delgado, David Wright, and of course, Jose Reyes. But the Marlins, even though they didn't have a good year that year, they, they still weren't too shabby themselves. They still featured the guy who you could say may, may be the best pitter in all Major League Baseball right now, Miguel Cabrera. And this is a lineup that also had some other guys that were pretty well known, such as Hanley Ramirez, Dan Ugla, Cody Ross, all protecting Mickey in the Order. The Marlins had won the first game of the doubleheader 3-2 as Josh Johnson outdueled John Main. Nolasco could not get off to a worse start. He yielded a triple and an RBI single before he loaded the bases in the first inning. Up stood Jose Valentin, and Valentin hits a grand slam to make it 5-0. And this is after Pelfrey was not scored upon in the first inning, so he goes back out for the second inning with a 5-0 lead. The Mets go at it. They add four more in the bottom of the second inning, and Ricky Nolasco is out of the game. A line of an inning and two-thirds, nine earned runs, six hits, three walks, and a strikeout. Pelfrey would end up sticking around for through five through 104 pitches, giving up three runs, two of them earned, on five hits, four walks, and three strikeouts. Mets would win the game by the final score of 17-3. Pelfrey earning his first major league win. Another side note, left-hand pitcher Jason Vargas, who would later on be traded to the Mets and now pitches for the Kansas City Royals, came out in relief and pitched the final six and a third innings for the Marlins. Though he gave them some length, the results were not very good as he gave up eight runs on ten hits. The slow 2014 start aside. It is safe to say that he's been the better pitcher since that day. After an injury in 2007, the last go would win 15 games in 2008, 13 games in 2009. And for the next four seasons, go 49 and 45 with an ERA and a low fours. A very durable pitcher, a guy who pitched between 180 and 200 innings each season and was starting to get the track record of a trusted starter. Well, Mike Pelfrey. He was a guy that had all this hype, all this hope, the former first-round draft pick out of Wichita State. Velasco himself was drafted in a fourth round by the Chicago Cubs, and not that highly touted. And obviously, somewhere along the line, and obviously a lot of it had to do with Mike Pelfrey's Tommy John surgery, where he seemed to be throwing the ball pretty well at the beginning of the 2012 season. He pitched last year for the Twins. then. Things didn't work out too well. He got himself a new two-year contract where he has a chance to work out some of his kinks. And we'll see. Obviously, you can't look at this season's stats so far if you want to judge who is the better pitcher long-term because Ricky Nolasco is getting the money, but he's not living up to it. And Mike Pelfrey is probably on the borderline of being out of the rotation altogether. Once again, John Pielli here, Passball Show, brought to you by JohnPielli.com. What we're going to do is we're going to take a break And on the other side, we'll be joined by former Major League umpire in the American League, Al Clark, whose book, Called Out But Safe, A Baseball Umpire's Journey, was just released in the bookstores this past week. So we're going to go over Al Clark's career, some of the things that have happened since he's been done umpiring, and what was the sole motivation behind the book. Right on the other side of this break. So John Piele, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Don't forget to tweet at me at John underscore Piele. Be right back This is Lady E, one of the many broadcasters at MTR Radio. If you're listening to mtrradio.com, fantastic. ¡Qué bueno! But if you want to take us with you, we have an app for your smartphone that lets you listen to us 24-7. Just go to Google Play on your Android device or the iPhone App Store and download our app, MTR Radio.
1: This is John Pielli and I'm happy to be joined by a long time umpire in the American League and then when the umpires switched over to cover both the American and National League up through 1991, and that's Al Clark. Al is the author of a book called Called Out But Safe, A Baseball Umpire's Journey, which uh, is partially written by Dan Schlossberg and Dan Dan has also been on this program a couple of times. I want to welcome Al to the program. Al, I appreciate you having a couple minutes.
2: It is a pleasure to be here with you. I, I look forward to talking with you and
1: telling everyone about the book. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, man. And obviously, things are going very well with the book. And if you know, if it was released yesterday on May first. So you get it in your local bookstore, whether it's Barnes and Noble, Bookends, um, any place down the road they, that sells sells hard copies. Al Clark's book is available. Al, first thing I want to ask you is uh, going back to your childhood when you were younger. What What inspired you to want to become an umpire, and about how old were you when you decided that this is what you wanted to do?
2: John, that's a great question. Uh, Obviously, and for sure, no one grows up wanting to be an umpire, one grows up wanting to be a player, of course, and when that hard, harsh realization sets in that you're just not good enough to be a player, you kind of set your sights elsewhere. And for me, I had umpired as a second summertime job in the summertime uh, in and around the Trenton, New Jersey area. I went to college at Eastern Kentucky University, got out of college. I uh, taught for a year. I didn't especially enjoy that. I wrote for a year uh, for a newspaper in Trenton, New Jersey, but I, quite honestly, I wanted to eat steaks instead of hamburgers the rest of my life. Mm. We had a major league uh, writer on our staff in the newspaper uh, that I was working for. I asked him, when he went to New York, to find out how one gets into organized baseball as an umpire. He did, and he came back and told me that one has got to go to umpire school, and then your career begins. I went to alpire school in 1972 in St. Petersburg, Florida, got a job at the Midwest League, and four years later, I was in
1: the Big leagues. That's fantastic. Now, I'm going to make a statement to you, and you tell me what this means to me. Al Clark is the first Jewish umpire in the history of the American League.
2: Tremendous pride. I don't know would be the first and only ever Jewish umpire hired by the American League but you know it is what it is and what it is is it presents a tremendous amount of pride to me. Uh, I, I wear that pride on my sleeve and, uh, I'm, I'm, happy to at it. and I'm quite happy to have that uh,
1: acknowledgement. Yeah, now once again John Pielli here with former Major League umpire Al Clark. Now when you made your first appearance in the Major Leagues as an umpire? I'm sure you remember that day pretty clearly. Uh, I was uh, in the spring of 1976. I worked third base at the old ballpark in Arlington, Texas,
2: Arlington Stadium. I worked with the renowned umpire Bill Haller. And on the crew was Ron Luciano and Larry McCroy. I remember it like it was yesterday and we'll never, ever forget it. That was a goal that was reached uh, at the time, the only goal. And But since then, and you get into the Big Lakes, of course, you want to matriculate. You want to be chosen to work a World Series and an All-Star Game and postseason stuff. And uh, all that happened to me, for me. And I, I lived a dream while in the Big Lakes, John. I mean, every day I went to work in my entire adult life. I put on a big league baseball uniform, and the places where I went to work, my office, so to speak, was Yankee Stadium and Camden Yards and Fenway Park and at the end Wrigley Field and Comiskey Park and Angel Stadium and Dodger Stadium. For a young guy uh, growing up in America and being an all-American kid, what better way can you imagine? to live your life like that and all those things i wrote about as a matter of fact uh if i can go on just a little bit john of course. at the end of my career i did something that even for a weathered a old veteran it was really kind of cool uh the commissioner's office we combined links and the commissioner's office took a day off away from my
1: Especially, I mean, you, you take, take away the travel. And just have a chance to be in those three stadiums on consecutive days, not too many people could say they've done that. Yeah, that's right.
2: And, and I'm, I'm very humbled and very privileged to have been in Major League Baseball for 26 years, living the life that
1: we did. Now, of course, once again, John Pielli here with uh, author and former Major League umpire Al Clark. His book is called a Called Out But Safe A Baseball Umpire's Journey. Now, as you got into umpiring, whether you're talking about the minor league level, on the major league level where you were for many years, was there one umpire that stood out to you that was kind of a mentor to you?
2: like Jim Joyce, and Brian Laura and Mark Wagner. Uh, I mean these guys are, are great umpires today uh, that I hope they look at me like I look at some of the uh, the umpires that helped me along the way. And that's why and that's how we have so much pride in in what we do as umpires. We, we, uh, we work to make our profession as good as it is. And the way to do that is to mentor our young people.
1: Yeah, you know, of course. And I tell you, it's you know, you talk about the generations and generations before that, you know did the same thing that you did going back to, the, you know, the turn of the century into, into the 1900s. I mean, uh, you know, it's a profession just similar, in my opinion, to, to the athletes themselves because it's something that carries on from generation to generation and what better way to make sure it carries on the best way is for the older and more experienced umpires to mentor the younger ones.
2: That's exactly right, John, and, and uh, I think umpires are perhaps just a little different than players where uh, the umpires, we know, well, we know of all the umpires in the history of umpiring. Uh, I'm not sure that today's players know and appreciate the players and what the sacrifices were made by those players that cut floods of the world. that. Uh, uh, the players today are enjoying the fruits of their issues back in the day. And I think that, that most of today's umpires, because there's so, you know, so many more few of us, if you will, uh, they know that back in the 70s, we made gigantic strides in the 80s because of the work stoppages and our attorney, Richie Phillips, uh, we stuck together and we were, you know, we weren't earning a lot of money and we didn't have a lot of respect. And we came out of the dark ages with that attorney that led the way. plus of that we all stuck together, and and uh, that's an important part of the heritage of major league umpires. Uh, we, I think, most of the umpires in the big leagues today are appreciative of that. I hope that, that a lot of players are appreciative of what the, the fellas did in yesterday year for them. They certainly wouldn't be earning. What they're earning today, but we're in for players like
1: Kurt Flood and in individuals like Marvin Miller. No, that's I think that game has come a long, long way. I absolutely agree. And once again, John Pielli here with Al Clark. You can check out his book called Out But Safe: A Baseball Umpire's Journey. Uh, also written by Dan Schlossberg. Um, you kind of touched on something that I wanted to get into a little bit. In 1999, there was a, you know, a, a group effort by the umpires led by Richie Phillips, and it led to the mass resignation of what turned out to be 22 umpires. Um, the fallout of that you know could be perceived in a a couple different ways. I think the umpires ended up making out better over time, but still there's several umpires that ended up losing their jobs and weren't able to return to doing what they were doing. Uh, A little bit about your your opinion on that and what do you think that impact had on Major League Baseball, the umpires and going forward? Well,
2: let's let's start at the beginning on that one, John. He came up with the idea that we would uh, all sign letters resigning on September 1st of 1999. The letters were a ploy to get a collective bargaining agreement started before the agreement ran out at at the end of December 1999. And Richie was going to tell uh, the people in the commissioner's office that he had these letters. And all he wanted to do was start negotiating uh, a new contract before the contract actually expired. And if he didn't, then uh, he may not have any umpires uh, for, of course, September, the September pennant races, in the postseason. Unfortunately, someone in Richie's office actually put all those letters of resignation into a fax machine. They went to New York. And Sandy so Aldoben was in charge of all the field activities and umpires at that time. He's now the general manager of the uh, New York Mets. Uh, he took them, counseled with his people, and decided to accept the resignations of all the guys. Now we ended up having a window uh, for guys that wanted to rescind that letter of resignation. Uh, I was one of those guys that did rescind my letter of resignation, and the, that letter was accepted. Uh, there were a number of guys who either didn't sign letters rescinding their resignation or that letter was not accepted. Uh, I think it led the way to uh, Richie's demise and the the the. Uh, the, the Using the Major League Umpires Association and the enactment of the World Umpires Association, the new union, uh, and it was a mistake by Richie. I mean, the the ploy probably wasn't a mistake, but the actual sending of the the letters in the fax machine, that was a huge mistake. And It was because of that that, that that Richie finally got fired. That said, Richie Phillips is a paramount figure in Major League Umpires. Uh, with Major League umpires and always should be the same as Marvin Miller for players. Richie did more for us, Major League umpires, than anybody in the history of umpires. And he should certainly be acknowledged for that and never forgotten.
1: Yeah, no question about it and, you know, you all have, uh, you know, as, as umpires, you have somebody that you have to, to look up to and see, all right, well, where were things, for, for your instance, let's say, in 1976 and how were, how were they? I went to work and I earned $15,500 for the entire uh, baseball season and when I left baseball in
2: 2001, my last salary was $384,000. And that was all because of uh, the union, Major League Umpires Association, uh, the umpires sticking together, and through labor negotiations.
1: And hey, once again, John Pielli here with former American League umpire and eventually Major League umpire when the umpires you know, ended up doing both leagues, Al Clark. Um, one more question on that. After Afterwards, you know, after 1999 going forward, um, you know, you mentioned that things ended up getting better. You got the, the, you got the new contract, or things ended up working a little better in your favor. Was there any awkwardness um, as far as thinking about some of the umpires that had lost their jobs and either were not allowed to come back or maybe forced into retirement a little early?
2: Of course there was, and uh, we we wanted to. We didn't want to lose anybody, and some of the fellows that were lost eventually did come back. But there were some who who never came back, and uh, we all felt terrible about that. Of course, but but, you know it comes down to uh, you've got to feed your family also, and uh, the the Major League Baseball office, the commissioner's office. The way that it was done was certainly legally within their right to do what they did. uh, Accepting some of the letters of of resignation and not accepting others. And, I mean, that's just like any uh, job or any corporation. Uh, Some people are going to be released and fired. Other people are going to be uh, hired and brought back. Uh, It's a tough pill to swallow. The you know the way it was done. Uh, it, it's, it's just so bad. Those letters, the initial letters, were put into that fax machine and they went to New York.
1: Now, now was this something that you feel was intended from from Richie Phillips, or was this a mistake, maybe a clerical mistake or a misunderstanding that uh, you know the intention was not to have these letters faxed over? Oh,
2: well, the intention absolutely was not
1: to have okay. the letters faxed
2: over. It was a mistake by. Right? By someone in Richie's office to actually do it. Uh, we we signed those letters uh, of resignation during the All Star break. We had a meeting in Philadelphia, and uh, with the clear, you know, conception that the letters would be used as a ploy to get Major League Baseball to start negotiating before the end of December 1999. It was certainly a mistake that the letters were put into the fax machine and sent to New York in
1: July. Hey, once again, John Pielli here with Al Clark. I'm going to touch on a couple of things in regards to rules changes now, which, you know, you, you all touched on, and, you know, within your book. Um, performance enhancing drugs in baseball, first question about that, is that something that you are aware was existing as far back as you started umpiring, or was it something that maybe you noticed at certain point of your career, or maybe never noticed at all while you're umpiring?
2: Well, I don't think it was quite prevalent in 1976 uh, when I started on the big leagues. What was more prevalent then was uh, uh, greenies amphetamines and uh, maybe some some cocaine and heroin that was uh, kind of we were made aware of that with the, uh, with the caterers if you remember that were bringing it into the pirate dressing room and as time moved on and we got into the PED and the steroid era uh, we were all aware of, of so many things that were going on I think the commissioner's office turned a blind eye to most of it because, uh, you know, chicks like the long ball.
1: Exactly. And uh, there,
2: were being, there were a lot of home being hit, and there was a lot of action on the field, and the seats were being filled by a lot of fans. Uh, some guys, I guess, the root of all evil is is the, the money, and baseball was making a tournament, and uh, until it became such a bad. It didn't get any worse uh, than when a World Series was was canceled. Uh, It was a blank. It was a dark spot. It was a uh, a, a, a bad time for baseball. But, like everything else, it evolved, and uh, the year after the World Series was canceled, we had an unbelievable ray of sunshine, and that was Cal Ripken and what he did in Baltimore over the span of his career, breaking the consecutive game streak of Lou Garrett. I happened to be in Baltimore uh, for that week, I had umpired the home plate, the night that Cal tied Garrett's record. It was the first night that he, he broke the record. And John, everything, everything in baseball was good for that week. Everything that was bad and blighted was momentarily forgotten, and baseball, the, the game of baseball and what Cal did and his work ethic, uh, never ever questioned uh, about what he did or how he did it. Baseball was back on top and it was cool and it was great to be in Baltimore that week. And from there we, we moved forward and of course the, the, uh, the PEDs and the steroids were still prevalent. But from that point on, it was so much more acknowledged and through the negotiation through the Commissioner's Office and the Players Association and, and whatever it took. Uh, uh, standards are in place now and penalties are in place now to hopefully make the playing field a level playing field. And let's go back to the. You know, the old thing I believe Stan Musial said at first, way back in the day, way back when, where the only race is the race to first base. The only color is white for the home team and play for the visitors. And the only creed is the baseball rule book. And if we can get back to that era, that way of thinking, and everything is a, is a, is a level playing field, our game will continue to thrive and be the best game in the world.
1: No, I absolutely agree. Once again, John Pielli here with Al Clark. His book is called, Called Out But Safe, A Baseball Umpire's Journey. Um, obviously, something you've experienced many times throughout your, your career as an umpire, Uh, pitchers trying to get an advantage we talked about you know performance enhancing drugs which did impact some pitchers but for the most part was something a lot of hitters were doing Uh, pitchers doctor in a baseball whether we're talking about you know putting some Vaseline or pine tar or scuffing the ball in any way um, was that something that you saw very often and was very prevalent during your career as an umpire? No
2: we we didn't see it as often as perhaps people might think I mean the the, the old-time players, Gaylord Perry, had the reputation of uh, you know, using a spitball or using his slime ball or whatever it's called. Uh, but I think Gaylord, with all his gyrations, uh, put the perception to the hitter more than anything else. Uh, other pitchers were were allegedly you know, cheating, but it was difficult to catch, to see, uh, and unless there was was hardcore evidence. It was difficult as an umpire to do anything about it. And then, of course, we have the most recent situation where where this fellow Panetta from the Yankees uh, was just overt and quite honestly just silly and stupid by putting Paitar on his neck. In today's world of high-definition television, uh, I mean, you've got to be a little smarter than that. And, and happenstance had it. Arguably one of the best... Umpires in the game was working on Blake that day in Jerry Davis. Uh, there's a fellow who has more postseason experience in the in the way of games than any other umpire ever. Uh, he went out. It was an easy call. Uh, I mean, he was applying a foreign substance to the ball, and of course was ejected. And my take on that, John, quite simply, is if a player is going to be suspended for. Uh, 50 or 80 games because of uh, cheating with PEDs or steroids. Cheating is cheating. A rose is a rose. And if you really want to stop that kind of thing and put a detriment to a player's uh, uh, thinking, suspend the pitcher for 50 or 80 days. That'll get the attention of everybody else in baseball.
1: Okay. Maybe it
2: won't be worthwhile to, to do some cheating.
1: No, I agree with that. I mean, do you, think, do you think that from the umpire, let's say you are behind home plate, is there anything that you can notice specifically without looking at a pitcher or maybe something that they're applying to the ball over the movement of the ball? Has there been any time that you've seen the ball just move in such a weird way that you feel it's just unnatural to do that with just the regular arm motion?
2: Not necessarily because every pitcher throws sliders differently every pitcher's fastball moves differently, every pitcher's curve you know, curves at a different angle perhaps and, and curves differently. So no, uh, unless we see or the umpires see or actually uh, can feel something on the ball or see the player do what he's, he's alleged to have done, uh, there's nothing that we can really do in a legal, legal fashion. Uh, but that said, of course we look for things, and our job is to police the game and make it as good as that can be, and I think on buyers, Historically,
1: have done a great job of that. I absolutely agree. Once again, John Pelle here with Al Clark, his book called Out the Safe: A Baseball Umpire's Journey. I just got a couple more questions, and we're going to talk. We'll talk a little bit about, of course, um, your what ends up being your termination from Major League Baseball in 2001 as an umpire. Um, from your from your own words, what happened in that situation, and how have you best moved on from it?
2: In 2001, John, uh, in baseball parlance, I was given my release by the commissioner's office. And every day parlance, I was fired. And I was fired over something that I that I did. Uh, we were at a ball game in Atlanta. I had my wife with me, and I own a home in South Florida. We had a day off following that game, um, and I was going down to South Florida. Uh, we, the volume in Atlanta had gone into extra innings and I had missed all the flights except one going to South Florida that night in Atlanta. And I had done everything correct when we deviated travel. We were allowed to downgrade our tickets to coach and then fly coach to the deviation and go home and then fly coach back up to our next assigned city. I had done all that correctly. Unfortunately for me, on that night, There was only one flight going to South Florida, or the one flight remaining going to South Florida. It was going to West Palm Beach, and uh, there were only first class seats available. I used the air travel card to upgrade both my wife and my ticket. And my mistake was that I failed to call the commissioner's office the next day, informing them that I had used the ticket is the air travel card in that manner and was going to send them a check. I was got involved with, with doing whatever I was doing at the house in South Florida, uh, failed to do so. They obviously caught the, the uh, additional charges on the credit card and uh, they chose to terminate me, which is obviously well within their realm of doing whatever they wanted to do. It was a tough pill to swallow, what, I'm not the, the first guy to ever get fired from a uh, uh, high-profile or high paying job and I'm certainly not going to be the last. And uh, that all said, John, I spent 26 years on the big leagues living a dream. Uh, the way that it ended, if I, if I had my drubbers, I'd rather have it in a different way. I only wanted to work another year and a half uh, and then retire, but it didn't. So, I mean, you got to turn the page and you got to move on. Uh, unfortunately for me, a couple of years later, I became involved with a, a fellow who was supposedly a friend of mine. I had uh, been privileged to work in a number of really iconic games and situations in Major League Baseball, and some superators, of course, were garnered. I had given a, uh, a memorabilia dealer in the North New York area a uh, about eight balls from Nolan Ryan's 300 win. I had uh, worked complete plate when Nolan Ryan earned his 300th win. And uh, Nolan, always good to the umpire, signed some balls for us from that game. I gave myself about eight of them. He asked me to sign letters of authentication for them. Uh, I did, but uh, he asked me to sign about uh, 15 to 20 of them. And although I knew it was wrong, I did it anyway, and i not thinking that it was a big deal. I gave them to him, uh, and lastly well, I didn't give them to him. I signed them in, in my home, at my home in Williamsburg, Virginia. Sent them through the U.S. mail to to New York, where he lived, and uh, that constituted U.S. mail fraud. I played guilty to one count of mail fraud. And I was uh, incarcerated for 120 days in a federal lockup, in a federal lockup camp. Actually, I was never—I never spent a night behind bars. But uh, I mean, that was a rude awakening. And in the book, i, I talk about it extensively, uh, going back over my life. It was quite therapeutic to do so, and quite interesting. A lot of strange things happen in, in while you're incarcerated, and I wrote about them. Some of them. My like baseball stories are very, very funny. And some of them are quite poignant. And I I just put it out all all on the table. Hence the the title we came out with, came up with the University of Nebraska Press is called out but safe. And I am safe right now. I'm very happy. Uh, my baseball journey has been very prophetic. I, I've loved every minute of it. I love the aspect of actually walking out on a Major League Baseball field and umpiring. What a thrill, what a privilege to have been a part of Major League Baseball for 26 years. Uh, Nobody could ever take that away from me. And my attitude is turning negatives into positives, trying to be as positive as I can. Uh, Even while I was incarcerated, uh, I I talked to the warden and we actually ran an official's course, an umpire's course, while I was incarcerated. It lasted about four or five weeks, three or four times a week. We had about 35 inmates in there. We actually had skull sessions and, and blackboard sessions. I took people out onto a basketball court and showed them uh, uh, officiating moves and where they should be and, of course, out onto a baseball field in hopes that when these fellows, you know, get their time and were released, they could actually go back into their communities and add something Uh, positive to their existence and give something back to the communities as officials. And I learned about it extensively in the book. And and So, you know, uh,
1: called out but safe, I am very safe now, John. That's fantastic, Al. I really appreciate you giving me the time. Of course, check out the book, Al Clark with Dan Schlossberg, called out but safe, a baseball umpire's journey in bookstores now. I appreciate it very much, Al. John, yeah, thank you very much, and also at Amazon.com. Yeah, of course, Amazon.com. Welcome London.
2: Chicago.
1: Boston, ticket. Just going. Going, going. 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 Come as well. Take care. Good.